Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Unanswered Prayers. Now, what do I mean when I say unanswered prayers? From a Mormon perspective, even the title of this podcast is Anathema. It is a hard pill to swallow that there could possibly be such a thing as a prayer that goes unanswered, at least within the LDS framework. Let me take a minute to focus the issue a little more narrowly. There are a number of reasons that a prayer can go unanswered. First off, if it is prayed for by someone outside the LDS faith. People outside the LDS faith do not have the required connection with deity in order to pray with power, in order to pray in such a way as to have their prayers answered. And even within the LDS church, there are people who are perhaps not following the commandments, who are not faithful in their callings, who are not doing everything that they are supposed to do. When such people pray and do not get an answer to their prayers, well, the solution is obvious. They are not putting themselves in a position of favor with God such that he will respond to their prayers, regardless of how earnest they may be. And even if a person is righteous, if I may use that expression, even if a person is righteous and prays for something that is perhaps not a righteous desire and something that is not in accord with God's will, then that prayer also will not be answered. But when a person is righteous, doing all that they are supposed to do. They are a Latter-day Saint. They are keeping their covenants. They are going to the temple. They are doing their home teaching. They are paying their tithing. They are attending church and on and on with a litany of everything that a Mormon has to do in order to be good, to make themselves right with God. And then when that person asks for something that is righteous, we have a promise within Mormon theology that God will answer their prayers. There was even a famous book written on the subject some years ago, which became very popular. Among missionaries especially, it was called Drawing on the Powers of Heaven. When I went on my mission back in 1979 to Japan, every missionary knew about this book, and most missionaries had a copy of it. I didn't have a copy of it, but another missionary in my district did, and I borrowed it and read it from front to end. And that book cites numerous scriptures in the LDS canon, both from the Bible as well as the triple combination, to establish the case that if we are righteous and call upon God, we have the power to draw upon the powers of heaven and our righteous prayers will definitely be answered. So we can see that already we as Latter-day Saints, and frankly we're not alone in this, I expect this applies to most Christians and probably members of other faith traditions as well, but we have an almost infinite capacity to make excuses for God and to posit reasons as to why it is that he does not answer prayers. We've already seen a number of those in this podcast, and I'm sure my audience can think of a number more. So I want to focus this discussion down to the narrow point of a person who is a Latter-day Saint doing everything they're supposed to do, who makes a righteous prayer to God, and yet that prayer goes unanswered. It is that idea that is so difficult to reconcile with the teachings of Mormonism. And indeed, numerous talks have been given by general authorities of the church in general conference and elsewhere to try and explain away how it is that a righteous Mormon could pray a righteous prayer and yet have it go unanswered. Well, the first step in this process is to say that no such prayer actually goes unanswered. It may look like it goes unanswered, but that is our fault, not God's. We cannot see 
that it is being answered. We cannot see how it is being answered. Nevertheless, we are assured that it is, in fact, being answered because God answers all prayers. Over the 40 years that I have been a member of the church, I could not count the number of times that people have took the stand at fast and testimony meeting and in other venues to bear their testimony that God answers their prayers, all of their prayers. In fact, the line that I remember the most frequently hearing is, God always answers my prayers even when the answer is no. Now, that is a nice bumper sticker slogan to explain how it is that God answers all prayers. He answers all prayers even when the answer is no. And yet, after many years of hearing this and similar sentiments expressed in the LDS Church, I came to start thinking that what was really being meant was that God answers all my prayers even when God doesn't answer my prayers. And I began to wonder if that was really the truth that hid behind that expression. I know that from my own personal experience, I could say that God answers all of my prayers even when the answer is no, except I feel that for me personally, I would not be intellectually honest with myself if I said such a thing. My reality is that as a Mormon, I prayed every day, multiple times a day, and Mormons know the right way to pray. We teach it to investigators. We teach it to members. There are four steps to prayer. You can probably repeat them with me. The first step is to address our Heavenly Father. The second is to give thanks for the things that we have received. The third step is to ask for what we need. There's the petition part. There's the prayer part. There's the request part to God. And then we close in the name of Jesus Christ. So every day for 40 years, multiple times a day, I would follow that pattern. And as part of that pattern, in the third step, I would ask God for the things that I needed. Now, I have to tell you that really the vast majority of times I asked for things from God, those prayers went unanswered. Now, there are a couple of exceptions, but basically 99% of the time that I prayed for something to God, that prayer went unanswered. Let me share with you a little background on my part. Now, you know that I did not join the LDS Church until I was out of high school. I was 18 years old. The year was 1978 when I was baptized. But even before my baptism in the LDS Church, as a child, I had a deep and abiding belief and faith in God, that He existed, that He was all-powerful, that He was all-loving, and that He would answer my prayers if I prayed for something that was a righteous cause. I remember back when I was 10 years old. It was the spring of 1970. It was spring break. And over spring break in 1970, when I was 10, I got the idea in my head that I wanted to be a superhero. And not just any superhero, but a superhero that was devoted exclusively to saving and helping animals. I loved animals so much. Dogs, cats. I wasn't a dog person. I wasn't a cat person. I love them all equally. I was an animal person. I watched all the TV shows that dealt with animals. I watched Flipper. I watched Doctari. I watched Gentle Ben. And even on Sundays, when there were no cartoons on, I would watch Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. And if any of you remember that show, you get extra credit in this class. So suffice it to say that my love for animals was huge. It was the biggest thing in my life. And once again, I wanted to be able to help animals. I got an idea in my head sometime around then that I would become a veterinarian when I grew up. And I wasn't satisfied with waiting until I grew up and actually went to veterinarian school and learned how to help animals with medical problems. 
I started up a veterinarian clinic in the front living room of the house. I even got a piece of cardboard and made a sign and stuck it up in front of the house that this was a veterinarian's office and I think probably walk-ins were welcome. I had this idea that just because of my sheer desire to help animals, I would be able to help them regardless of what complications or diseases or broken bones or issues any animal had. I could help with it, surely out of my love for them. Now thankfully nobody actually ever brought their animals into the front living room and asked for help but I was there, I was ready to go. I had some supplies put up there, I had some cotton balls I'd grabbed from under the sink in the bathroom, maybe some Q-tips, possibly some bandages as well. I was ready to go, but nobody ever knocked on the door. So after this failed attempt to be a 10-year-old veterinarian, I decided I wanted to be a superhero. I got a white t-shirt that belonged to my big brother, uh, probably without his knowledge, and I drew a diagram right in the middle of the chest. But you know how Superman has a big S in the middle of his chest? Well, I drew a diagram probably similar to the Superman diagram, but instead of the S in the middle, I put the letter A. And the letter A stood for animal. I even had my name, my superhero name, all figured out. It wouldn't be Superman, it would be Animal Man. And I remember it was the last Sunday of spring break, 1970, and I knew that I wanted to be a superhero, but in order to be a superhero, I needed more than just a t-shirt with a really cool diagram on it. I needed superpowers. Where could I turn to to get superpowers? Well, the answer to me was obvious. I could turn to God. So I remember being in my bedroom that night on my bed. The door to the bedroom was ajar. It was about halfway open, and I sat there on the bed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed so hard with such faith, with such belief and such earnestness as only a child can do. And I prayed that God would give me superpowers so that I could use them to help animals. This was a righteous request. What could be a more righteous request than wanting superpowers to help animals, I thought. And the reason I mentioned the door being halfway opened is because I prayed to God that he would give me the power to move that door to move it a little bit more open or a little bit more closed but to give me some kind of power some kind of physical demonstration some might call it a sign but i just wanted a physical demonstration that actually god had answered my prayers and that i did have superpowers i prayed so hard for that door to move even just an inch and i kept watching the door and watching the door and watching the door and waiting and praying and hoping that it would move even the tiniest bit in response to my righteous pleading to the Lord. But it did not move at all. The reason I remember this experience almost half a century later is because of the huge disappointment I felt over this failed experiment in faith. I began praying with the utmost confidence. That confidence began to dim as time went on, and ultimately, I was left in tears, crying with frustration, and yes, probably even anger, that God was not answering my prayer. So that is the story of how Radio Free Mormon did not become a superhero named Animal Man. But the experience left an imprint on me. Well, time went on. It's now 1978. Eight years have gone by. I now find the one and only true church the church with the actual real connection to God, and not only that, but the priesthood of God, I am doing everything I am supposed to be doing. And in earnest of that fact, I go on a mission to Japan. I am 
not the best missionary in the world. I'm not an assistant to the president. I do eventually become a zone leader, but basically that happened to everybody in my mission. As long as you were drawing breath and had been there long enough and weren't a complete screw up. So it's 1981 and I am in the last year, probably the last six months of my mission. I am a zone leader in Mikunigaoka in Japan, along with Elder Bigler, my companion. And I get word from home that my aunt has cancer. Now, this is my Aunt Joyce. Now, my Aunt Joyce was a wonderful person, a wonderful aunt. I loved her with all of my heart, and I was very upset to find out that she had cancer. But, but, I was now not a 10-year-old non-Mormon. I was a 21-year-old LDS missionary with the priesthood of God. I now knew that I had the right connection with God, the right relationship with God, and the right power of God. Surely God would answer my righteous prayer that my Aunt Joyce be healed from cancer and be allowed to live. So every day I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that she would live. I felt sure that my prayers would be answered. But the bottom line is that they were not. And I was extremely sad when I received a letter from home letting me know that Aunt Joyce had passed away. I did not know what to make of this. All I knew was that I was a righteous Mormon praying for a righteous cause and my righteous prayer was not answered by God. How could this be? I did not have the answer to that. I only knew that it was so. I honestly cannot remember at this point if I made excuses for God. I don't recall doing so. I don't know if I thought, well, he needed my Aunt Joyce on the other side for some reason that was more important than her staying here. I know that is a common excuse that is made when God does not answer prayers for people to survive or when God does not honor priesthood blessings of healing. All I know is that this experience too left its mark. Now, when I was 10, praying to God to be a superhero and asking for a door to move as a sign that he had given me superpowers, that's stupid, I know. That's kid stuff, right? But praying for my aunt to be healed from cancer was anything but kid stuff. And yet I got exactly the same result from God in answer to my prayers. Nothing. And I am obviously not alone in this type of experience, which is why general authorities with some regularity address this question in general conference. And yet, when such prayers go unanswered, it seems that the spin that church leaders want to put on it is that really, they are answered. They're just not answered in such a way as we can see it or understand it. And their job is to help us understand that actually, God answers all such prayers, even when it seems, for all intents and purposes, that really, He's not. This is the somewhat strange aspect of Mormonism that I want to explore more fully in tonight's podcast. It seems to fall under the umbrella of Elder Bednar talking about people having faith not to be healed. Well, if you get a priesthood blessing and you're healed, you've got faith. But if, as more frequently happens, apparently, you get a priesthood blessing and you are not healed and you die, well, that means that you had more faith. So no matter what the result is of a priesthood blessing, it can show faith. In a similar way, Elder Holland told a story called Wrong Roads, and that story has to do with answers to our prayers, i.e. answers to our prayer by revelation or inspiration, and that even if we get an inspiration that ends up being wrong, then really it's the right inspiration because by following the inspiration that leads us to the wrong result, we can now know with a surety 
that the right answer would have been the thing that we weren't told to do in the first place. Because tonight's subject is so similar to that idea, that kind of mental gymnastics required to make everything work even when it's the opposite of what we have been led and taught to expect, I thought about giving it the subtitle, Wrong Rosaries. But I thought that might be a little bit out there because this is a Mormon podcast, not a Catholic podcast. But the idea is the same, is that when we pray to God, no matter what happens, we have developed a system by which we can say that our prayers are answered anyway. And indeed, in General Conference from April of 2019, There was not one talk devoted to this issue, but actually two talks. The first talk on this subject was given in the Saturday morning session of General Conference by Elder Brooke Hales of the Seventy, and the second talk on this subject was given in the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference. So the very first session and the very last session of General Conference, there are talks dealing with this issue about how it is that God answers our prayers. And the first talk given by Elder Hales, is titled, unsurprisingly enough, Answers to Prayer. Elder Hales gives us three possible scenarios that can result when we pray to God. And he defines all three of these as answers to prayer. We'll go through each of those three examples here in a minute. But to give you a brief overview, the first example is when we pray to God and God actually answers our prayers. Now, I will tell you up front that what this is going to be is a story about coincidences. It has developed in Mormonism that God is really the God of coincidences. Coincidences have become miracles in the LDS Church, and coincidences have also become answers to prayer in the LDS Church. We'll see a classic example of that in the first story told by Elder Hales. The second story has to do with when we pray for something and God does not answer our prayers. But in retrospect, we get something else from God, or in other words, what we pray for is not given to us, something else happens, and in retrospect, we realize that the something else that happened was better than what we had prayed for in the first place. Therefore, God answered our prayer not by giving us what we wanted, but by giving us something better, something that disappoints us in the here and now, but only in retrospect is something that we realize was much better for us. And the third example, believe it or not, is when God simply does not answer our prayers at all. Except then we are given the caveat that God will answer our prayers anyway, but only according to his timetable, which usually means sometime in the next life. Now, when you get to the position that you're saying God answers your prayer, but it will be sometime in the next life, I'm having a hard time drawing a distinction between that idea and the idea that God simply is not going to answer your prayer at all. And yet, it is through this three-part structure of his talk that Elder Hales defends the proposition that God always answers our prayers. Now, I am going to play bits and pieces of Elder Hales' talk. If you wish to hear the talk in its entirety, I encourage you to go to the LDS.org, or I think it's churchofjesuschrist.org now, website and listen to it in its fullness. The main things I want to pull out are the three modern-day examples that Elder Hales gives of each of his three arguments for how it is that God always answers our prayers. But before he gets to those examples, he will give us a basic understanding of why it is that he feels compelled to give this talk in the first place. Play the tape. An important and comforting doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that our Heavenly Father has perfect love for his children. Because of that perfect love, he blesses us not only according to our desires and needs, but also according to his infinite wisdom. 
Now here, Elder Hale sets forth the two basic premises on which is based the idea that God always answers our righteous prayers. The first is that he has perfect love for his children. Obviously, a God who has perfect love for his children would want to answer their righteous prayers. But not only does he want to answer their righteous prayers, he also will answer their righteous prayers because he is not only all-loving, he is also all-powerful. Therefore, he has not only the motivation to answer our prayers, but he also has the power to do so. Because of these twin ideas, it is very common in Mormonism to believe that God is the ultimate micromanager. He is involved even in the smallest details of our lives. And indeed, Elder Hales hits this note as well. Play the tape. One aspect of that perfect love is our Heavenly Father's involvement in the details of our lives, even when we may not be aware of it or understand it. Okay, so now we have the theological basis for why it is that God answers our prayers even in the tiniest details of our lives. And here we have Elder Hale's helpful synopsis of his talk where he lists the three different types of ways in which God answers prayers, even before he gets to the examples. If you listen closely, you'll hear him state the same three things that I talked about just a few minutes ago. Play the tape. The Father is aware of us, knows our needs, and will help us perfectly. Sometimes that help is given in the very moment, or at least soon after we ask for divine help. Sometimes our most worthy and earnest desires are not answered in the way we hope, but we find that God has greater blessings in store, and sometimes our righteous desires are not granted in this life. So here, Elder Hale starts out his synopsis with the blanket statement, the Father is aware of us, knows our needs, and will help us perfectly. See, there's that idea that God will help us perfectly, and therefore, he will answer our prayers perfectly according to the way that is the very best for us. The first way is sometimes that help is given in the very moment or at least soon after we ask for divine help. The second way is sometimes our most earnest and worthy desires are not answered in the way we hope, but we find that God has greater blessings in store. That's the one where in retrospect you see that God gave you something that was actually better than what you had been praying for. And finally, the third category, and sometimes our righteous desires are not granted in this life. Well, if God will help us perfectly, then the implication there is that our righteous desires may not be granted in this life, but they will be granted in the next life. Now, if you're looking at this objectively, it appears that the first category is God answering your prayers. The second category is God not answering your prayers. And the third category is God really not answering your prayers. Nevertheless, Elder Hale seems determined to shoehorn all three of these categories into the premise of the Father is aware of us, knows our needs, and will help us perfectly. Elder Hales is ready to give us the first example of sometimes God's help is given in the very moment or at least soon after we ask for divine help. Once again, as I mentioned before, you'll see that this is an exercise in coincidence. Play the tape. I will illustrate through three different accounts the ways our Father in Heaven may answer our earnest petitions to Him. Our youngest son was called to serve as a missionary in the France Paris Mission. In preparation to serve, we went with him to purchase the usual shirts, suits, ties, socks, and an overcoat. Unfortunately, the overcoat he wanted was not immediately in stock in the size he needed. However, the store clerk indicated that the coat would become available in a few weeks, 
and would be delivered to the Missionary Training Center in Provo prior to our son's departure for France. We paid for the coat and thought nothing more of it. Our son entered the Missionary Training Center in June, and the overcoat was delivered just days before his scheduled departure in August. He did not try on the coat, but hurriedly packed it in his luggage with his other clothing and items. As winter approached in Paris, where our son was serving, he wrote to us that he had pulled out the overcoat, tried it on, but found that it was far too small. We therefore had to deposit extra funds in his bank account so that he could buy another coat in Paris, which he did. With some irritation, I wrote to him and told him to give the first coat away inasmuch as he couldn't use it. We later received this email from him. It is very, very cold here. The wind seems to go right through us, although my new coat is great and quite heavy. I gave my old one to another missionary in our apartment who said that he had been praying for a way to get a better coat. He's a convert of several years, and he has only his mom and the missionary who baptized him who are supporting him on his mission. And so the coat was an answer to prayer, so I felt very happy about that. Heavenly Father knew that this missionary who was serving in France some 6,200 miles away from home would urgently need a new overcoat for a cold winter in Paris, but that this missionary would not have the means to buy one. Heavenly Father also knew that our son would receive from the clothing store in Provo, Utah, an overcoat that would be far too small. He knew that these two missionaries would be serving together in Paris and that the coat would be an answer to the humble and earnest prayer of a missionary who had an immediate need. Okay, so here's the first example that Elder Hales gives of God answering a prayer in the moment the prayer is made or soon after. And he's not referring to his son, but he's referring to the missionary companion that his son had in Paris. Now, notice that that missionary does have a coat. He's not without a coat, but he had been praying for a way to get a better coat. Well, certainly that is a righteous prayer for a missionary in Paris who wants to be able to go out and tract and not freeze to death. He wants a better coat. He apparently cannot afford to get a better coat because he's a convert just of several years, only his mom and the missionary who baptized him who are supporting him on his mission. And so the coat was an answer to a prayer. Now that is a very nice story, but there's really nothing terribly miraculous about it unless we talk about miracles being coincidences. And as I've mentioned before, coincidences are the new miracles. Coincidences are the new answers to prayer in the LDS church. Divine intervention is defined as a coincidence. And the greater the coincidence and the more involved the number of steps needed in order to make the coincidence happen, the greater the divine intervention. Here, Elder Hale suggests that a number of coincidences all of them unlikely had to happen and combine together in order to produce this answer to prayer. First off, his son had to be called to this particular mission. Second off, he had to be in the training center in June so he would not need his overcoat. Third off, the store where they bought the overcoat had to back order it. Fourth, it had to be too small. Fifth, the son had to not try it on at the MTC before he left for Paris. Otherwise, he would have realized too early that it was too small and they could have returned it at the store. Sixth, he has to get to Paris and be matched up with this particular missionary. Seventh, this missionary has to need a coat because his coat is not warm enough. And finally, this missionary has to be praying for a better coat. Oh, and perhaps additional coincidences also have to do with the fact 
that Elder Hales can buy his son a new coat and put the extra funds into the bank account for him to do so. And also, I guess that the missionary companion is small enough to be able to wear the coat that is too small for Elder Hale's son to wear. All of these unlikely occurrences mesh together in order to make one great miracle, one great answer to prayer. And actually, I suppose an additional coincidence would be that Elder Hales did not tell his son just to send the coat home so he could turn it into the store and get reimbursed for it. Instead, he wrote to him and told him just to give the coat away. There are all sorts of coincidences going on here. So all of these coincidences end up being somewhat reminiscent of another story that we heard a few years back by Elder Holland, which was told at the MTC to the newly called mission presidents there about the greatest missionary story ever told. I did a podcast about that, you may recall. And as part of that story, Elder Holland talked about how busy the switchboard must be in heaven to arrange for all of these unlikely events to happen. First off, to have this boy leave home, go to New York, become a hell's angel, end up transferring from New York to California, to have his younger brother, who never knew his older brother apparently, get born, grow up, get called on a mission, be sent down to California to be sent to the exact mission in which his brother was living, and then after being in the mission to be assigned by the mission president to the exact area within the mission in which his brother was living at the Hells Angels Clubhouse, and then to be impressed that day to go tracting there, and ultimately for the divine intervention of pacifying the vicious guard dogs that were there to prevent anybody from walking through the front gate and up to the house. Well, all those things happened. Now, you'll recall that Elder Holland, shortly after he gave that talk, had to issue a retraction. Well, actually, he didn't issue a retraction. He had other people issue a retraction for him. And then an explanation as to why it is that actually, you know, members of the family who were involved in this whole story heard Elder Holland had given this talk and had contacted Elder Holland and said, well, You got some things wrong with that. Basically, all the miraculous elements of that talk that you told in the story never happened. So here we have a similar type of reasoning, though, from Elder Hales. All these coincidences amount to one answer to prayer. Let me say something about coincidences here just briefly. First off, I'm not going to say that no coincidence can ever be an answer to prayer. What I am going to say, however, is that sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. Sometimes we think of coincidences as being outside the norm, something that is unusual. And when looked at from one aspect, it is that way. But looked at from another aspect, every single moment of our day is governed by the most unlikely of coincidences. The very fact that I exist and the fact that you exist and the fact that everybody exists on this planet is the result of extremely unlikely coincidences. Let me give you myself for an example. The very fact that I'm here is dependent upon the fact that my mom met my dad and that they got married and that they had children. Well, my mom is from Texas and my dad is from Indiana. They met in California. The reason my mom was in California was because she was visiting her sister. The reason my dad was in California was because he was there on some kind of business trip and they just happened to meet in a park and they struck up a conversation, they ended up liking each other, they ended up carrying on their relationship and finally getting married. Now, of all the millions of people in the United States of America, let alone all the millions of other people in the world, but just in the United States of America, 
The odds that my mom and my dad would meet under such circumstances is extremely remote. It is one of the most unlikely of coincidences that could occur, and yet it did occur. If that coincidence had not occurred, I would not be here. And now, if we take it from my mom and my dad, and then go back to my dad's parents and their meeting, well, I don't know the details of their meeting, but I'm going to bet it's pretty coincidental. And then looking at my mom's parents and their meeting, well, that's probably another coincidence. And you can take this back from generation to generation, all the way back to the very beginning, wherever that is, according to your line of belief. And you will see that when you start multiplying these coincidences of couples meeting that are necessary to bring you down to your mom and dad meeting, and then you being their child, when you multiply all those coincidences out, the coincidences of my existing and speaking to you right now behind the microphone are astronomically remote. And yet here I am. The likelihood of you existing right now and listening to me talking from behind the microphone are astronomically remote. And so all I'm saying is that even astronomically remote coincidences do not necessarily amount to a miracle or to an answer to prayer from God. I want to go to my little book of quotations now. Some years back, I read the book, All the King's Men. And there was a passage from that book that sort of dealt with this issue. At least my recollection is it deals with that issue. I want to find it here and read it to you. This is the book in which I write down different quotes and passages from books I read that impress me and that I want to remember and keep in a special place so I can look them up with greater ease. No, it's not from All the President's Men. It's from Look Homeward Angel. That's why I was having trouble finding it. Here's the quote. Each of us is all the sums he has not counted. Let me repeat that. Each of us is all the sums he has not counted. Subtract us into nakedness and night again, and you shall see begin in Crete 4,000 years ago the love that ended yesterday in Texas. Ah, I love that. Let me repeat that. Each of us is all the sums he has not counted. Subtract us into nakedness and night again, and you shall see begin in Crete 4,000 years ago the love that ended yesterday in Texas. Look homeward angel, Thomas Wolfe. That's the quote I was thinking of, and yes, it does have something to do with what I was talking about. We are all astronomically unlikely. Unlikely events happen every day, and so we should be careful before we attribute to unlikely events, the intercession of God. Think of it this way. If this particular scenario described by Elder Hales had played out in another church with missionaries for Jehovah's Witnesses or perhaps Seventh-day Adventists, would we be as likely to ascribe the hand of God to this scenario or merely consider it a coincidence? And if we would look at the same set of facts as a coincidence, if the players were substituted, then perhaps that should temper how we view it, even when Mormons are involved. But this is just the first example when there is an apparent answer to prayer, even when that answer to prayer is facilitated by the convergence of coincidences. So you know, I have just come back after taking a break of 24 hours 
in recording this podcast. The reason for that is because this story by Elder Hales about the missionary who needed a better jacket during the cold winter in Paris reminded me of an experience that I had some time ago. And it is an eerily similar experience because I am actually one of the characters in this story. I am not Elder Hales with a son on a mission. I am not Elder Hales' son who gets one good coat but then finds out it's too small and is able to get another good coat for the winner and gives his old coat away to another missionary. I am the unnamed missionary who does not have a jacket that is good enough for the winter. I have not thought of this story in a long time. It is basically 40 years ago that it happened. I have rarely told this story, and when I have told it, it is simply a silly story. It's a funny story. But for some reason, when I'm comparing this story of mine with a story told by Elder Hales, it is bringing up all these unpleasant emotions in me, so I took 24 hours to try and process some of these emotions and come back and record the rest of this podcast. Let me share with you my story. Now, as you know, I joined the LDS Church out of high school, 1978. I'm the only member of the church in my family. My brother's a Jehovah's Witness, my father's an atheist, my mother is a nominal Christian who does not go to church. So I have little to no moral support or emotional support for my going on a mission, at least from my family. But I knew that I was expected to go on a mission. I knew that that would cost money. And so after high school and after my baptism, I got a job to try and start earning the money that would be needed. First off, I was working at an electric company as one of the boys who would collect necessary equipment at the store and run it out to the job sites for the real electricians. I did this for a number of months and then finally left that job, took another job as a night watchman at a halfway house for mentally ill and mentally disturbed people. I worked at that job for a number of months too. Now, I imagine I could have worked harder, I could have worked longer, I could have worked at better paying jobs. Both of these were minimum wage jobs, which at the time, by the way, was $2 an hour. Suffice it to say that when the time came for me to get ready to outfit myself to go on a mission, I did not have a ton of money. It is now October of 1979. I have already received my mission call to Japan. I have also received a list of items that I need to purchase in order to get outfitted to go on my mission. On this list, it has many items of clothing, such as two pairs of shoes, one black and one brown, a certain number of suits, three neckties, all of them conservative, a certain number of shirts, some with short sleeves, some with long sleeves, and an overcoat. I was living in Washington State at this time with my family, and a number of weeks before I was scheduled to go to Provo to the Missionary Training Center, my family moved from Washington to Texas. Because of the situation, I opted to stay in Washington, but I obviously couldn't stay in our old house, so I stayed at my friend's house. Now, that friend was Bruce. I've talked about him before. He was the one responsible for me getting baptized into the LDS Church. In fact, he's the one who baptized me. But also by this time, Bruce had already gone into the Missionary Training Center himself, so I was staying just with his family. They were kind enough to put me up for several weeks before I left for Provo. The story of our mission calls is somewhat humorous because Bruce and I were the only two people in our high school who had gone through all four years of German. We started in ninth grade and we continued through all four years. And by the time the fourth year rolled around in our senior year, Bruce and I were the only two people with four years under our belt. We both put those four years of German in our missionary applications. Bruce gets called to Austria. 
I get called to Japan. So go figure that one out. The Lord works in mysterious ways. But what this ended up meaning at the MTC is that Bruce could basically goof off while everybody else in his district was learning German, which he already knew, and I had to bust my hump with all the other schmoes in my district to try and learn Japanese from the ground up. But back to my story, I was pretty much on my own in order to go out and buy all the things I needed for my mission. As it turned out, I had enough money to get the things I needed for my mission to fly to the MTC to get through the two months at the MTC, to fly from the MTC to Japan. And once I hit the ground in Japan in January of 1980, I was out of money. At this point, an arrangement was worked out that my parents, God bless them, funded half the money for my mission and the 70s quorum from my stake in Washington funded the other half. So what ended up happening is that when it came time to equip myself, I knew that I was on a shoestring. I had to find the cheapest items that I possibly could and so I went by myself to a thrift store. I got the cheapest shirts I could find. I got the cheapest neckties I could find. I got the cheapest shoes I could find. Two pairs, one brown and one black. And it ended up being that these shoes were actually made completely of plastic. And so what I found out, much to my dismay, when I began walking around in these shoes at the MTC, that they were so ill-fitting and so sharp that the back of the shoes ended up shredding the back of my heels as I walked around in them. I was able to find some plastic clips to put on the back of the shoes that helped somewhat with my shredding problem. But my heels were sore for quite a while after that. I also found out once I got to Japan that plastic is an excellent conductor of cold. I did not find this out until I got to Japan though because at the MTC the heating was always on. Even though I was there from November to January 1979 to 1980, the central heating at the MTC was excellent. So even during a cold Utah winter, I had no problem with my shoes as far as the temperature went. It was only when I hit the ground in Japan and started walking around there outside all day long that I found out what an excellent conductor of cold plastic shoes are. They gave me absolutely no protection from the cold. So I had very cold feet during my first several months in Japan. But not only were my feet cold, but the rest of me was cold too. Because when I went to get an overcoat, once again, I'm trying to get the cheapest overcoat I can, and I end up getting a secondhand overcoat with no lining. There were zippers on the inside of the coat for where a lining had once been, but that lining was long gone by the time I bought this coat. I was very proud of myself for having purchased a cheap coat, for having purchased cheap shoes, for having purchased cheap everything, and being able to equip myself for my mission. And once again, I did not notice any problem with my overcoat at the MTC because the MTC was heated. But when I got to Japan, it was a very different story. When I got to Japan in January of 1980, the first night we spent at the mission home, all sleeping on the floor. It was very warm in the mission home. The next day, we were assigned to different companionships. And as it turned out, I did not get assigned to a district in Kobe, Japan, in the city, which was cold enough, by the way. But instead, I got assigned to a district that was way up in the mountains of Japan. I was assigned to an excellent training missionary. He was a wonderful trainer. I'll say a little bit more about him later in the podcast. But I remember getting on a train the next day and taking it on a very long train ride 
up into the mountains of Japan to our district. By the time the train was entering the mountain city, it was already dark out and snow was falling. I remember seeing the bright pink neon lights from the local pachinko palaces as our train rattled on through the snowfall. Finally, it came to a stop. We got out, got on the bikes, and went to the house in which the missionaries lived, in which I was going to live. And one of the things that shocked me about the Japanese culture and about this house in particular is that there was no central heating. In fact, there was also no insulation. So walking into the house, it was good in that it kept the snow off you and the wind off you, but the temperature inside the house was exactly the same as the temperature outside the house, i.e. below freezing. I remember undressing that night in the bedroom. Of course, bedroom is a bit of a misnomer because there are no beds in Japan. You simply sleep on the floor on the tatami mat in your futon. But I remember stripping off my clothes one layer at a time, getting colder and colder as I did so, and distinctly hearing a voice in my mind screaming, what on earth are you doing here? I remember a nice neighbor lady who was a member of the church coming over with some blankets to help me out that first night because I was so cold. And the blankets that were there at the apartment just weren't enough to take off the edge, if you know what I mean. But I found out very much that night, the next day, the day after that, that when we went out all day long and into the night until nine o'clock at night doing what missionaries do, that my overcoat with no lining was really no protection against the cold. I was a very, very cold missionary. It wasn't until spring rolled around that I began to warm up. And I remember in the spring of 1980 that there was a mission conference at the mission home. We all gathered at the mission home. It was a nice sunny day, thank goodness. And I met up with the other missionaries from the district at the MTC. And one of the missionaries there, Elder Opie. Now, his name wasn't really Elder Opie. I can't remember what his real name was, but he had a resemblance to Opie from the Andy Griffith show. He had a real baby face. So we just all called him Elder Opie. But I remember Elder Opie saying to me that during that long, cold winter, he would think about me in my overcoat with no lining which he laughingly referred to as a sheet, and that he just couldn't stop laughing when he thought about me out in this cold weather with nothing but a sheet. Everybody laughed at this, and I laughed along with him because it was ridiculous. But now when I hear Elder Hales tell this story about the missionary in Paris who had a bad coat, he wanted a better coat, and he was blessed by God through this confluence of coincidences to be able to get a better coat, it made me start to realize that there was no confluence of coincidence, there was no miracle, there was no answer to prayer, there was no divine response to a very real need by Radio Free Mormon as a missionary. There was no overcoat caught in the thicket for Radio Free Mormon to get a better coat so he wouldn't freeze his ass off during the Japanese winter. And in some sense, I think that this recognition, this comparison of Elder Hale's story and my experience, for some reason, brought up all these emotions in me. And once again, I've been trying to process them, make sense of them. I'm not sure that I am really able to. Is it because that my experience makes me feel marginalized in the eyes of God, where he will move heaven and earth to provide a coat to one missionary, but not to me? I'm not sure. Maybe that's part of it. But then I stop and I think, wait a second. What if I were the parent of a missionary like me? How would I feel then? Because you see, I never asked my parents 
to get me a coat. I never asked the 70s quorum to get me a coat. I never told anybody about this. And I'm sure if I had told my parents, hey, I'm over here in Japan, it's the middle of the winter, I've got this crappy coat, could you please send me a new one? They would have done so. I think my 70s quorum would have done so too. But I never mentioned it to anybody, so I just suffered in silence. But ultimately, the bottom line is, I was cold for a few months. Big deal, right? What if you're a parent who has a child who goes on a mission and dies while on their mission? We periodically hear stories about elders and sister missionaries who die tragically while on their mission. Perhaps they're electrocuted while on their mission. They might suffocate because of a faulty heater while on their mission. How do you feel if you're a parent of one of those missionaries who dies, where there is no answer to prayer, there is no special convoluted confluence of coincidence that protects your child? How would I feel if I am such a parent listening to Elder Hales give a talk about God bending over backward to provide a second, better coat for a missionary in Paris. I don't know the answer to that, but I can imagine I wouldn't be feeling really good about it. Okay, so I have gone on for quite a bit of time about Elder Hale's example number one, and this is his example where prayers do get answered, and yet I find it extremely problematic, not only theologically, but also from my personal experience. Let's go to example two now from Elder Hale's, where You don't get what you ask for when you pray, but you get something else. And in retrospect, you figure out that that something else you got was really much better than what you had prayed for in the first place. Play the tape. In other situations, when our worthy desire is not granted in the way we had hoped, it may actually be for our ultimate benefit. While in college, our oldest son was hired into a very desirable part-time student job that had the potential to lead to a wonderful permanent job after graduating. He worked hard at this student job for four years, became highly qualified, and was well respected by his co-workers and supervisors. At the end of his senior year, almost as if orchestrated by heaven, at least to our son's way of thinking, the permanent position did open up and he was the leading candidate, with every indication and expectation that indeed he would get the job. Well, he was not hired. None of us could understand it. He had prepared well, interviewed well was the most qualified candidate and had prayed with great hope and expectation. He was devastated and crushed, and the entire episode left all of us scratching our heads. Why had God abandoned him in his righteous desire? It wasn't until several years later that the answer became very clear. Had he received the dream job after graduation, he would have missed a critical life-changing opportunity that has now proved to be for his eternal benefit and blessing. God knew the end from the beginning, as He always does, and in this case, the answer to many righteous prayers was no in favor of a far superior outcome. So notice there that he actually says what it is that I've heard in church many, many times, that God always answers my prayers even when the answer is no. He says God knew the end from the beginning, as He always does, and in this case, the answer to many righteous prayers was no in favor of a far superior outcome. So it's no, but there's something better that's going to be given instead. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that happened to Elder Hale's son after he didn't get the job that was determined in retrospect to be better for him than if he had got the job that he wanted and apparently was praying for. We're led to think that it has something to do with the church 
Because Elder Hale says, had he received the dream job after graduation, he would have missed a critical, life-changing opportunity that has now proved to be for his eternal benefit and blessing. So that sounds like some kind of church job. Elder Hales isn't going to give us the details for some reason. He's just going to leave it out there as something that sounds supernally wonderful. So it sounds to me like he did not get the job he wanted, and therefore he got a different job, obviously, which caused a relocation. He had to move someplace different than he would have lived if he had gotten the original job. And in this new place, he was called as a bishop. He was called perhaps as a stake president. I don't know. But it sounds to me like there was something that happened in this new location that was related to church, which Elder Hales is calling a critical life-changing opportunity that has now proved to be for his eternal benefit and blessing. And if he had gotten the original job that he wanted, he would have missed this opportunity. Well, here's the deal. Anytime we want something and pray for it and we don't get it, something else will happen. That's the nature of life. If one thing doesn't happen, something else will happen. And many times we find out as a matter of course that the thing that happened after we didn't get the thing that we wanted is something that was better than the thing that we wanted in the first place. Of course, really, we can't compare it with the thing that we wanted in the first place because we never got that. So we never get to go down that road and find out what life would have been like with the thing that we prayed for, that we wanted, that we never got. All we have left is the thing that actually happened. So I am glad that Elder Hale's son feels that the thing that ended up happening after he did not get his dream job was better than the dream job itself. But that is the nature of life. That happens frequently inside of Mormonism and outside of Mormonism with prayer or without prayer. I am not sure that it is necessarily correct to call this type of situation where you don't get what you're praying for, but something else happens that in retrospect you think is better than what you prayed for originally, that that is also an answer to prayer. But that's how Elder Hales frames the issue. So we've got the first two examples done. The first example is where God answers your prayer through coincidence, apparently, or through some means. The second example is where God does not answer your prayer, but gives you something else that in retrospect you determined was better than what it was you were praying for in the first place. And now the third example is the most difficult example, because the third example of how God answers your prayer is when God really, really does not answer your prayer. And here Elder Hales introduces the example of a woman he knows who has been blind since she was a young girl. And he introduces this story by saying, and sometimes the answer to prayer that we so righteously, desperately, and earnestly seek is not given in this life with the implication that it will be given in the next life. So that prayer will be answered to just not in this life. Let's hear what Elder Hales has to say about this woman whose name is Patricia Parkinson. Play the tape. And sometimes the answer to prayer that we so righteously, desperately, and earnestly seek is not given in this life. Sister Patricia Parkinson was born with normal eyesight, but at age seven, she began to go blind. At age nine, Pat began attending the Utah Schools for the Deaf and Blind in Ogden, Utah, some 90 miles from her home, necessitating her boarding at the school, which included all of the homesickness that a nine-year-old could possibly experience. Now, I am presuming from this description of Patricia Parkinson that even as a young girl, she was LDS. She was raised in an LDS family. She lived in Utah. 
She is now an adult and is obviously an acting and believing Mormon. There's nothing in the story to indicate that she was converted to the church at some point. So I'm going off the implication from this story that she was a member of the LDS church even when she was seven and began to go blind. The reason this is important to me is because I can only imagine the many, many priesthood blessings that she received from her father, from her bishop, from her home teachers, and perhaps from others that her sight would be restored, that she would not go blind. And yet apparently all such blessings were ineffective. Now I want to be careful here because this is tragic. It's tragic anytime somebody loses their sight. And I am not making fun of this lady, Patricia Parkinson, at all. All I am doing is noting that she appears to have been a Latter-day Saint raised in a Latter-day Saint household. She would have had access to priesthood blessings. Priesthood blessings would definitely have been given to her, and yet she went blind anyway. Let's continue with the story. By age 11, she'd completely lost her eyesight. Pat returned home permanently at age 15 to attend her local high school. She went on to college and graduated with an undergraduate degree in communication disorders and psychology. And after an heroic struggle against doubting university admissions officials, she entered graduate school and completed a master's degree in speech-language pathology. Pat now works with 53 elementary school students and supervises four speech-language technicians in her school district. She owns her own home and her own automobile, which friends and family members drive when Pat needs transportation. Okay, now this part of the story is inspiring. It's not inspiring because there's any miracle given by God, that there's any priesthood blessing that actually works, that there's any answer to prayer that Pat gives to try and have God restore her eyesight, but rather it's inspiring in the sense that it speaks to the strength of the human spirit and how human beings in general, and Patricia Parkinson specifically, can overcome great obstacles that are placed in their lives. So I find this part of the story inspiring, and I find the strength of Patricia Parkinson inspiring as well. Going on. At age 10, Pat was scheduled to have yet another medical procedure to address her diminishing eyesight. Her parents had always told her exactly what was going to happen in terms of her medical care, but for some reason, they did not tell her about this particular procedure. When her parents did tell her that the procedure had been scheduled, Pat, in the words of her mother, was a mess. Pat ran to the other room, but came back later, and said to her parents with some indignation, let me tell you what. I know it, God knows it, and you might as well know it too. I am going to be blind the rest of my life. Now, this part of the story speaks to great frustration that Pat was experiencing at this time in her life. I am sure she had been praying earnestly. She started going blind at age seven. This story happens when she's age 10. It's been three years. There have been a number of procedures. I am sure that Pat and her parents and her family and her ward and everybody who knows her has been praying for her that she would get her eyesight back. She has been receiving priesthood blessings that she would get her eyesight back. She has been going through medical procedures to try and help her get her eyesight back. And yet none of it is working. And so out of this, she bursts out in frustration and speaks what it is that's on her heart to her parents. And she says, what ends up actually being the truth, by the way, let me tell you what, I know it, God knows it, and you might as well know it too. I am going to be blind the rest of my life. I cannot even begin to comprehend how difficult this must have been for Pat and her family. 
And yet there is no answer to prayer from God for Pat to relieve her and her family of this difficult situation. Going on with the story. Several years ago, Pat traveled to California to visit family members who were living there. While outside with her three-year-old nephew, he said to her, Aunt Pat, why don't you just ask Heavenly Father to give you new eyes? Because if you ask Heavenly Father, he will give you whatever you want. You just have to ask him. Now, this is an interesting part of the story because what we have here is a three-year-old child talking to Pat and giving a very faith-filled response to the fact that she does not have her eyesight. He says, well, why don't you just ask God and he'll give you new eyes? Typically, in stories like this, it is the child that is looked to as the example of having faith. We are encouraged as members of the church to have the faith of a child and that it is the faith of a child that will lead us to get answers to our prayers. But here, that idea is flipped on its head because the child is looked at as really not being in touch with reality. The child's faith is looked at as being sweet but misguided. Now, if the story went on and said, wow, Pat looked at the child, thought, I need to have faith like that. And then she prays or gets the priesthood blessing. This child's common, has increased her faith, and she does get her sight restored. Boom. Now we've got a really great story. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. Instead, Pat has to explain the cold, hard facts of life to this kid. And that's what she does in the next part of the story. Play the tape. Pat said she was taken aback by the question, but responded, well, sometimes Heavenly Father doesn't work like that. Sometimes he needs you to learn something, and so he doesn't give you everything you want. Sometimes you have to wait. Heavenly Father and the Savior know best what is good for us and what we need. So they aren't going to grant you everything you want in the moment you want it. Okay, so Pat responds to the child and says, look, God doesn't work like that. God doesn't just give you what you pray for, which is a strange thing to say in a church that basically teaches that God does give you what you pray for. However, in this case, she knows that she's not going to get her eyesight back. She knows that that's the reality of life, and she's trying to explain it to this child. So this child will understand that, no, you can't just pray to God and get what you ask for. Instead, there are situations where God is not going to answer your prayers. And so she tries to frame it in terms of this. Well, God's not answering my prayer, and therefore there must be some other reason why it is that God is not answering my prayer. Well, he must want me to learn something. Now, it's very difficult to understand what it is that she's going to learn, what it is that she needs to learn. But the idea here is that God is not answering my prayer. Therefore, there must be a better reason, a more important reason, an overriding reason as to why it is he's not answering my prayer. And therefore, it must be because, well, he must want me to learn something. So that's what she explains to this child. Now, from the child's point of view, I imagine this was a real faith crusher. He's three years old. He has faith in God. He suggests this to his aunt. She tells him the reality. Boom. He realizes God is not there to answer prayers. But frankly, this has to happen in every Latter-day Saint's life at some point or other. For this kid, he was three. For me, I was 21, praying fruitlessly that God would let my Aunt Joyce live. And Pat concludes her statement to her three-year-old nephew by saying, so they, God and Jesus Christ, so they aren't going to grant you everything you want in the moment you want it. Well, that's kind of an understatement, isn't it? Because she's not going to get it at all. The only time she's going to get her eyesight back is hopefully after she dies. 
She has a hope that she will continue to live after death, that she will be resurrected, and that in the resurrection she will get her eyesight back because all parts of her body will be made perfect and functioning again. But as far as this life, no, there's not going to be an answer to any prayer that she get her eyesight back. And now Elder Hales concludes the story about Pat, how she's doing, where Pat admits to having suffered from severe bouts of depression. Yes, that's actually what she says, severe bouts of depression, and that she has cried a lot. Let's play the tape on this now. I've known Pat for many years and recently told her that I admired the fact that she's always positive and happy. She responded, well, you have not been at home with me, have you? I have my moments. I've had rather severe bouts of depression, and I've cried a lot. However, she added, from the time I started losing my sight, it was strange, but I knew that Heavenly Father and the Savior were with with my family and me. We handled it the best way we could, and in my opinion, we handled it the right way. I have ended up being a successful enough person, and generally, I have been a happy person. I remember His hand being in everything. To those who ask me if I am angry because I am blind, I respond, who would I be angry with? Heavenly Father is in this with me. I am not alone. He is with me all the time. Now, once again, I want to be very careful here because if this is the way Pat feels, I am glad that she feels this way. I am glad that she has come to reconcile her unanswered prayers for her eyesight with God always being with her. I do wonder if Pat's listening to this talk, and I'm sure she was listening to this talk by Elder Hales in General Conference, about how Pat feels about her unanswered prayers for her eyesight in comparison to the first story Elder Hales told about a missionary in Paris who had a coat that didn't keep him warm enough. His prayers were answered. He gets a better coat, but her prayers for better eyes go unheeded. I don't know how she would feel about that. I can imagine how I might feel about that. I might be thinking, so why is your coat more important to God than my eyes? And now, Elder Hales gives his final line about this story regarding Pat. And I was flabbergasted when I heard this line. Remember that this is being given by a general authority in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the restored church, the church with God's priesthood in it, the priesthood that has the power to heal people. Notice what he says here. Listen carefully. I think you'll be astonished as well. Play the tape. In this case, Pat's desire to regain her sight will not be granted in this life. But her motto learned from her father is, this too shall pass. Stop the tape. Really? Elder Hales? Did you just say that? Pat's desire to regain her sight will not be granted in this life. I am frankly astonished that you, Elder Hales, have so little faith in the priesthood, in the power of prayer, in the goodness of God, that not only do you know that Pat's eyesight has not been restored up to this point, but you know that her eyesight is never going to be restored to her in this life. Wasn't it Jesus who said, O ye of little faith? Wasn't it Jesus who said that if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, that you will command this mountain to move hence and it will move? And yet, you don't seem to even have the faith to believe that it's possible that in the future, Pat's eyesight may yet be restored to her by the power of God. Let me play that statement once again, just to make sure I have it right. In this case, Pat's desire to regain her sight will not be granted in this life. Wow. Just wow. I am floored. I have never heard 
any statement like this before in general conference. I have heard plenty of statements of people who get priesthood blessings and are not healed, of people who pray for things that they don't get, but I have never before, to my recollection, heard a general authority of the church state conclusively that a person will not be healed. I think Elder Hales may have just surpassed Elder Bednar. Elder Bednar talks about having the faith not to be healed. Elder Hales is now talking about having the faith not to heal. Is Elder Hales really saying, as he seems to be, that he knows he does not have the priesthood power to lay his hands on Patricia's head and heal her of her blindness? And is Elder Hales really saying, as he seems to be, that he does not know anybody among his colleagues in the general authorities, including the apostles and president of the church, who have the priesthood power to lay their hands on Patricia's head and heal her of her blindness? That sure is what it sounds like to me. Okay, so after having given this heart-wrenching story about Pat and her blindness and the fact that she was not healed from her blindness and the fact that she will never be healed from her blindness, at least not in this life, this is how Elder Hales concludes his talk. I know that God hears our prayers. I know that as an all-knowing, loving Father, He answers our prayers perfectly according to His infinite wisdom and in ways that will be to our ultimate benefit and blessing. Well, it seems to me that the story Elder Hales told about Pat sort of contradicts this conclusion. He doesn't tell us how it is that God failing and refusing, apparently, to heal her is somehow answering her prayer perfectly. And yet that's what he says. He answers our prayers perfectly according to his infinite wisdom and in ways that will be to our ultimate benefit and blessing. I'm not sure how not having eyesight for her entire life, since she was a child at least, is to pass ultimate benefit and blessing. I guess that's just sort of left up to us to imagine how that would be. And once again, we find ourselves in the position of having to make excuses for God. God says he will answer our prayers. We believe he will answer our prayers. We pray to him to have our eyesight restored. It is not restored. And therefore, we have to come up with an excuse as to why it is that God would not restore Pat's eyesight. And the reason must be because it is better for her to not have her eyesight. How is it better for her to not have her eyesight? Well, that's where we start getting very vague and general about it. And we just say that it is to her ultimate benefit and blessing. And that's really where the faith comes into play. The faith doesn't restore the eyesight. The faith restores our confidence in God's ability to answer prayers, even when he manifestly does not. Okay, so now let's go to the second talk, the one that's at the end of General Conference in the Sunday afternoon session. We're not going to spend as much time on this talk, but we are going to spend a little bit of time on it because here the speaker is Elder Kyle S. McKay of the Quorum of the Seventy. Elder McKay tackles this same question in his talk title, The Immediate Goodness of God. And he also deals with the issue of why is it that when we pray for things, we don't get them immediately. Sometimes we have to wait for them. Sometimes we're not going to get them until the next life. Yes, he deals with a story about not getting something until the next life as well. But his take on the subject is that we do get an immediate answer to our prayer in that we immediately get the hope that our prayer will be answered in the next life. Elder McKay begins with this humorous analogy to his five-year-old son. Play the tape. Several years ago, our five-year-old son came to me and announced, Dad, I've figured something out. 
I've figured out that soon for you is a very long time for me. <laughs> when the Lord or his servants say things like not many days hence or the time is not far distant, it can literally mean a lifetime or longer. His time and frequently his timing is different from ours. Patience is key. Without it, we can neither develop nor demonstrate faith in God unto life and salvation. But my message today is that even while we are patiently waiting upon the Lord, there are certain blessings that come to us immediately. So once again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on Elder McKay's talk. He does give a couple of examples of individuals to illustrate his point. One is a drug addict, and another is an example of a mother who loses her 10-year-old son in a tragic snowmobile accident. So obviously, this mother is not going to be getting her son back anytime in this life, and yet she has the hope immediately that she will receive her son back in the next life. And this is how Elder McKay deals with the issue of how it is that the scriptures, which he quotes throughout his talk, say that our prayers will be answered immediately even when they are not. Well, he says immediately we have the comfort that our prayer will ultimately be answered, even if it's in the next life. He makes this clear in his concluding testimony. I bear witness that Jesus Christ is the great deliverer. And in his name, I promise that as you turn to him with real intent and full purpose of heart, he will deliver you from everything that threatens to diminish or destroy your life or joy. That deliverance may take longer than you would like, perhaps a lifetime or longer. So to give you comfort, courage, and hope, to sustain and strengthen you to that day of ultimate deliverance, I commend to you and testify of the immediate goodness of God. So that's Elder McKay's creative answer to this thorny dilemma. But here's the really interesting thing about Elder McKay's talk. As I'm looking at his face during general conference and I'm looking at his name, Elder McKay, Elder Kyle McKay, Kyle McKay, that name sounded familiar because guess what? <laughs> My training missionary, when I got to Japan in January of 1980, remember, I'm up there in the mountains of Japan in my plastic shoes and my sheet of an overcoat. My training missionary, my first companion in Japan, was also named Kyle McKay. And I went and I looked at his bio and I realized this guy, this general authority who's speaking in general conference is my first missionary companion in Japan. Elder Kyle S. McKay. He was a great guy in Japan. I'm sure he's a great guy now. He was charismatic. He had leadership skills out the yin-yang. He was intelligent. He was funny. And I remember that it was from Elder McKay that I learned the analogy that kissing a girl was like sucking on the sweet end of a 30-foot tube. Yes, I remember that from you, Elder McKay. And as I recognized that Elder Kyle S. McKay of the 70 was my missionary companion in January of 1980 in Japan. I had to think of Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken, because had I taken the same road as Elder McKay, 
it's quite possible that I could be a general authority today. Of course, I don't have the McKay name. He was a grandnephew of David O. McKay. But nevertheless, if I had followed his path, possibly I could be a general authority as well. On the other hand, the path not taken goes both ways. And if he had taken a different path, then Elder McKay today could be Radio Free Mormon. Let me read that poem here as I close this podcast. The Road Not Taken Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one, as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Well, it is now 40 years after the fact. It is indeed ages and ages hence that two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Congratulations to you, Elder McKay, for becoming a 70 in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And congratulations to me, too, for becoming Radio Free Mormon. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.